Hey, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners, Killian, Mike, and Matt. And our icebreaker question today is based on PayPal's recent release of their list of their third-party vendors that have access to their customer base data. And the EU data protection regulation, the GDPR, requires that companies list who collects our data and what they do with it. And PayPal's list is 600 vendors long. And I wonder, do you think that's a lot of vendors that have access to a user's information or not? Or it doesn't really matter because the vendors are providing a service. Hey, this is Mike. I think this is probably at the high end. I mean, this is at the high end because they're a huge company. It's at the high end because they're doing financial transactions. And it's at the high end because like I had a friend that worked for PayPal and he described the company to me as a fraud detection company that occasionally takes payments. If you look through what a lot of these individual items are, they're for very specific things. It's for, in Germany, testing addresses against uh, phone numbers to see if they're legitimate. It's for these very specific situations. I think what's really great about this, they didn't just list out, oh, here's a list of companies. They list out every company. They list out a category for it, whether it's, you know, fraud disputes, the purpose, and then exactly what pieces of data are disclosed. So, you know, something we love is like privacy by design. So they're really restricting all of that. And it looks incredibly thorough. I think this is great, and I, I hope it serves as a good guiding template for other companies that are trying to come in into to GDPR compliance. Hi, this is Killian. I would tend to agree with Mike, and everyone listening is shocked now that we've started off this episode on a, on a wrong note instead of a disagreement, but I really wasn't shocked by the uh, amount of people on there, and especially because they do so many financial transactions. The only thing that kind of was interesting is the amount of people they have doing some type of customer service role. There was a massive section on that. All over the world, people handling customer service for them, and I don't know if that's typical of large organizations to have so many different customer service branches all over the world um, and outsource a lot of it. But I thought that was, again, kind of surprising, just the sheer number of it. Hey, this is Matt Radlack, by the way, guys. I looked at this list and I thought, wow, this is a lot of stuff. I thought there was a lot of sharing going on. I, I definitely agree with the fact that all of the sharing that's going on for the purposes of fraud detection is great. The question that I have is, are they sharing all the information by default with all these third parties or is it just a piece of it? So like, for instance, I look at one that they said they're doing for financial purposes with the Royal Mail Group in the UK. Are they sending them everything that has to do with all of my shipping and labeling information? Or, and this is what I'm assuming, is it just when I'm doing something where the, you know, the seller is going to specifically use this service or this portion of services with PayPal? Uh, And I hope it's the latter. If it's the former where all these companies are getting all the information by default, I think that's a little bit too much. But this was an area where I thought, you know, there was some ambiguity to the document. Thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy your show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our info set cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com review. And we started the show off by discussing third-party vendors. And I want to continue the discussion about vendors because it feels like disclosures can be viewed so subjectively. Apple, they recently updated their iOS security documentation to disclose that the personal data associated with their iCloud service is also stored on Google's cloud service as well as Amazon's S3. And so for people who have strong opinions about certain vendors and their services and policies, it can potentially impact how Apple's being perceived. Either they're selling out because they're associated with a particular vendor, 
then customers aren't really in control of their own information as they voiced as part of their internal value that customers' data should be their customers' control. And then some, they might simply think that they're sharing business so that they get a better deal. What are your opinions about this? I'm not surprised at all. It only makes sense that Apple would leverage the infrastructure and the investment that these other cloud providers have built already. It doesn't make sense to spin up brand new data centers to do the same thing if you can get the same value from well-established players who have already put in the investment. So many organizations leverage Amazon and Azure Web Services and even Google on the back end for storage. They've made these massive investments. So it makes sense to take advantage of that. I think, Cindy, to your point, though, Apple's kind of made a lot of noise railing against Google to a certain extent because Google does monetize some of the customer information they have. So they made a point of saying that they encrypt all the data anyway before it goes there to mitigate some of that. But I guess all users have to realize that as soon as you trust your data to a third party to a cloud storage, it's not your data anymore to a certain extent. You've put that trust in a different company. And of course, you can take steps and make smart choices to mitigate what you're entrusting to them by encrypting it. But again, you have to realize that you are putting it in someone else's data centers, leaving your control explicitly. I think one interesting thing here is just how often we're already putting our data into those different repositories, right? So if you have like the Box app or the Dropbox app, like Dropbox doesn't have their own file share arrays. They're leveraging the same cloud storage providers. And interestingly enough, Apple's language is stronger in your protection in regards to how they encrypt the data and using these providers than other providers are. You know, like Salesforce is a good example that comes to mind. Almost entirely cloud-based. Very few people have any kind of on-premise or hosted architecture for Salesforce, but everyone's using it to store their customer information. You're even accessing Salesforce from that same iPhone. So I, I think that the, the concerns here is just to try to, you know, paint some type of bad story about Apple. I think that the, the war is about the, you know, Apple versus Windows versus BlackBerry is always ongoing and people are always looking for a way to create some hype around one particular nuance of the way that they do business. But ultimately, I think this has no effect on anyone. I would actually go further than this, which is that in the same way that you don't really care that, oh, Apple is using, you know, a certain brand of hard drive to store the information on, that's really where these services are at and how they're being used in this case, where the best way to think about AWS is as infrastructure as a service. that And that's how they're using Google's cloud platform as well. And these have gotten so complex with so many different individual services inside them. You have to be incredibly detailed about how you're talking about them, where in the way that Apple's using them is very different than if you went into and stored a bunch of information in a Google spreadsheet. But I think consumer-wise, it's often thought of the same way, even though it's a vastly different thing. When you think about technologies interacting with each other, you, you're not really selecting a particular brand. I mean, they're all sort of married with each other. You think you're supporting one brand, but we're all sort of, all the technologies are supporting each other. And I still remember what you said, Mike, once about how data and how databases are connected, that you connect them all with duct tape, that there is really no choice. People just create services to and maybe enhance a service. I think there's a couple different things to take from this. One of which is that if you're the person consuming or trying to build an architecture on top of these different cloud services, one lesson to take from this is that you can build them in an agnostic way that, you know, there have been outages. There's been outages of Azure, there's been outages of Google Cloud, and there's been outages of AWS. So if you're building something that crosses all of those, you can build a little more redundancy in for yourself. And in the way in which you make this, you can make this so that you're not locked in so that if something happens where one of those, you know, suddenly triples their storage prices, you have an out that you have, you know, options. And I think that's the smart way to approach using these at the scale of this. And to 
a large extent, it's commoditized too, which is nice. So you don't have to take that into account when you're developing the services. You have options. And hopefully, if, if the market cooperates, uh, it should make it easier to deliver services at a lower price for customers eventually too. Um, it's kind of the long-term benefit. You know, a company we haven't mentioned in here is Netflix. So Netflix's architecture is entirely on top of AWS, who is also their Amazon's their primary competitor in the online video space. Yet that's who they use for all of their stuff um, for a lot of the same reasons. And I think it just, as someone who's making decisions about this, I, I think you can look at that and think, well, if that's what's going on, I probably shouldn't worry too much about, you know, my data being split out in the same sort of way on the backend infrastructure of these cloud services. Matt, we're supposed to be disagreeing with each other. So if you could say like, Mike, you're wrong, you're foolish, too trusting, all the things my kids say to me. The problem is our, our viewers are listening to us. They can't see Saint with his eyes. The eye roll. So. <laughs> Speaking of disclosures, recently the SEC issued further guidance on cybersecurity disclosures, and essentially the SEC asked public companies to report data security risk and incidents that would have a material impact for which reasonable investors would want to know about. What is the significance of this new guidance on cybersecurity disclosures? I think this is great. More regulation is needed in the realm of cybersecurity, I think. There's a lot of companies that are only going to do the bare minimum that they're legally obligated to do by themselves, the government, or their customers. And so what you're seeing is like uh, trends in the industry. People that work for the financial sector are just now really facing the burden of the financial sector laying compliance requirements on them. For those that haven't had to deal with that because the financial sector definitely got regulated first and thus put the controls in first, These all these other companies, now these other companies that fall under the guidance of the SEC are going to have to do the same thing. It's making cyber security a part of the conversation. The issue that I see with regulations like this, though, I mean, just to play both sides, is like this material disclosure conversation. So is this like the Intel problem, right, where the guys from Intel knew about a, a flaw in the Intel uh, processors but didn't disclose it? And was this law written in, in hopes to ensure that investors would have found out about that flaw earlier? Because uh, I think that it's never, it's, it'll never be perfect. The regulation like this is to try to increase visibility so that shareholders have a better understanding of what they're dealing with, which I think is great for investors and shareholders, but ultimately it's going to come down to the individual discretion of the companies as to what they share with the, you know, what they disclose and what they don't. But this is a great first step in that they're being required to disclose something, some measure of risk and some measure of incident. I was, I was going to disagree with Matt. Matt, I disagree. I think this is fantastic. You didn't go far enough. But it, at a more broad sense, what's really interesting is I think something that a lot of people in the security world have been saying for a long time that this is real and this really impacts business operations and the investors are starting to get skittish. There's, you know, maybe been one too many uh, breaches in the newspaper that have sent stock prices down and, you know, nobody likes to, to lose that kind of money. So it's in a ways a little bit shocking that it's taken them this long to kind of get around to saying, hey, you probably should tell your investors about this because it can have a massive impact. But I think it is a great first step. I think it is really important. And even as, you know, we're all probably have some type of investment somewhere along the line, but it's important for us to know the risks that we're dealing with. If we're putting our trust in our money into a company that they're going to take care of the security as an aspect of that. So, I mean, there's two parts to this. There's the data security. So as part of doing the normal filings with the SEC, they need to put out that really it's just a statement that, yeah, we've considered this. We've put some even minuscule amount of thought into thinking about our data security and then the material impact. And I think the first is probably better than the latter only because there have now been so many data breaches that it started to be a non-event that, oh yeah, one more, one more. And it hasn't really affected the companies where this has happened. And 
And I think that even, you know, in cases if there's a huge fine, it may not be materially impactful um, just because these companies are so large. And I think what this really, in comparison to say the GDPR, which is much more individual user data centric, where the breach information is much more centered around the type of information, is much more centered around notification of individuals. And I don't think this quite hits in the same way. I don't think this even hits in the same way as a lot of the individual United States per state data breach, you know, information, disclosure requirements. Based on that assumption, that position, do you think that we've reached a point where we've hit breach fatigue, where it's just par for the course, where it doesn't really matter anymore? That is an argument stirring question that you just asked there. You know, I don't think that we've hit breach fatigue. I don't even think we've scratched the surface of breach fatigue. I'll give my prediction here and hopefully you'll never actually quote me on this, right? Because I hope this never actually happens. But I hypothesize that uh, we're going to see the next, you know, in the next five years, the loss of human life associated with a cyber where a medical device or a car or some type of infrastructure is taken over and fails or something is changed in a way that causes us to lose human life. And I think that's going to be the first real wake up call to people that uh, what we're facing is a very real threat from all over the world, that the next world war is already being fought on the internet, uh, even though there aren't people invading other people. Uh, countries are in- engaging in nation state level espionage uh, around taking control of major infrastructure and that human lives depend on major infrastructure, whether it's water or power um, or even the availability of resources. And I think that this, again, we're, we're only scratching the surface of breaches. And I think the more that we disclose and the more we find out about it, the more people will feel like that it's a real problem and the more resources will be put into fixing this problem at maybe even a higher level than one individual company. Yeah, I, I just feel like you're, you're mixing together two different things there. You're mixing together, you know, malicious attackers getting into a company or into infrastructure versus a data breach where it's actually, you know, the data that leaves. And if you look in terms of like what this covers, I mean, this is really public companies, stock prices, and even something like, you know, look at the really famous data breaches before we had so much what I think of as data breach fatigue, like Target's stock price. I just looked it up. It dipped post their big data breach scandal, but recovered in a couple months and now is significantly higher. So there's a very easy legal SEC argument to be made that, oh, it wasn't material, even though it was horrendous. I'm like in, in the scope of what we think of. So, you know, much smaller breaches, uh, it's hard to see as anything other than drop in the bucket to to them. And I think a lot of that's because the cost is externalized, that they aren't paying it themselves. It's paid by everyone whose data has been leaked out and has had issues and things. Even look at Equifax, you know, they've been in the news and they've had a lot of bad press. But generally speaking, it hasn't been as catastrophic as everyone would think, considering the amount of damage they could do to, you know, people's lives. And it keeps getting worse. You know, they think that they've lost even more than they initially uh, assumed. So I think to that point, Mike, you're entirely correct. And to Matt's point, I think you're also entirely correct. I think your predictions are terrifyingly maybe correct. Hopefully we don't get to the point where we experience loss of life or some type of catastrophic shutdown. But I think the risk is there for sure. Uh, I think we have these um, systems that are connected to the internet, um, like our power grid and things like that, that are so massive and so complex and that were never really designed to be on the internet now. And we face that real potential. Should we lose sleep over it tonight? Maybe, maybe not. But uh, in the future, I can definitely see that as being a, a fairly significant concern. I'm thinking that hospitals have lots and lots of backups, though, in terms of if one technological fail happens, they have a secondary element to buffer them, which is why I'm going to be optimistic and believe otherwise. Maybe I might be a little delusional. In the interest of disagreement, you could. there's two major case studies you could look at that. So you have the LA hospital that paid the ransomware, right? That was, what was it, $20,000 last year? And then you have the hospital in Georgetown that, um, 
just had to deal with it. It just went back to paper systems when they were faced with the ransomware incident. So unfortunately, I don't think that many hospitals are prepared, even the well-funded ones, public and private. But hopefully what it what it does mean, though, like what you said, is that hopefully there's no life-dependent systems that are dependent on that, on, you know, on the delivery of patient care, right? So hopefully doctors can still do whatever they have to do without that computer system that maybe they didn't have five or 10 years ago. So when I think about the SEC and their guidance, I'm also thinking that the C-suite executives have security matters on their mind. And there is a list of questions that uh, the C-suite executive asked, for example, whether or not they'd ever be a victim of a cybercrime, how to prevent it, how to find good security pros and make them want to stay, whether or not they should pay a rand- ransom. And I think beyond these questions, how would you recommend a CISO or an IT manager to speak to someone and and present to someone in the C-suite? And oftentimes they might just assume certain technology is there when in fact there isn't and that um, they didn't realize, oh, maybe certain pieces of software is really expensive. So they need to realign their budget to get the right security solutions they need. What are your recommendations? Sure. So I um, was faced with, been faced with this problem in the past. And the one way that I took it was, what do you think we're doing? Right. So I started the conversation with, you know, what do you think is actually happening? What do you think that we do on a day to day basis in information security? And a lot of times I got questions like, you know, look at people's screens, read all the emails, you know, intercept network traffic, open, you know, open emails or look at their personal emails. And I had to then kind of set level set and say, well, actually, a majority of my day I spend doing this like, you know, budgeting and chartering projects or executing on projects. And I spend maybe 5% of my time actually opening emails, which equates out to 100 emails a day are probably actually read, even though we send on average 20,000. Just to try to paint the picture of like, you know, you have this expectation, you have this idea in your head of what we're doing on a daily basis. This is what's actually happening. If you want more to happen, or if you want things to change, this is the, this is the, this is how we make that happen. You know, if you think we have this world-class antivirus, but in reality, we're just running Microsoft AV, where we can't catch the same threats that some other AV can do. And if it's important, if you think that, you know, combating viruses should be a top priority, then we should change that. And so I always like to, to start the conversation with, well, what do you think I'm, What do you think we're doing? What do you think we have coverage for? How do, where do you think we're safe? I think exactly to that point, Matt, when you bring it up, then how do you connect that to really what, what they care about? You know, what is what is that protection? Um, what is that sense of security? What is that worth to the business, to them? How is it going to affect them? Is it worth it to, you know, invest a little bit more in one particular technology to reduce risk and, you know, or reducing risk? can sometimes be hard to quantify. Connecting back to what Mike said, how is that going to affect, you know, your maybe SEC disclosure? You know, if you invest a little bit more, is it going to reduce the potential of having to disclose a material breach, for example? And then what impact is that going to have on the top and bottom lines? This is Mike. My thought is, I think the biggest conceptual gap is that you have to look for these things that, you know, without the tools and the ability to, you know, go out and try to find what is actually happening on the network, that you're just already behind the, the curve and that, you know, most data breaches breaches, which is, you know, most of what we're concerned with, how most companies find out is externally. It's not something they find out internally. It's that they, you know, that there's a story about it and a reporter contacts them or someone, you know, tweets it to them 
on their social media. Like it's some crazy thing and then they're scrambling. So I, I think that's the big switch to me is that you have to convey that, you know, this stuff is lurking and you have to go look for it. You can't just be reactive. And just to echo on, on Mike's point, another thing I like to do with an executive audience is say, can we simulate a breach, right? Can I get an hour or two of your time? Can we run through some scenarios and actually do a full on breach simulation at the executive level? Because what you'll find often is that not everyone at the table is in agreement on what, what's supposed to happen next. And having that conversation in a simulated environment for the first time is much better than having it in reality for the first time. And so I think that that helps with executive audiences as well. Just for fun, I want to know, because recently on Twitter, there was a Twitter moment about how Alexis started randomly laughing. And I want to know if, Mike, your Alexa started laughing. No, it didn't. I was really disappointed, actually. I felt like, what is what is happening? Why why do you not care about me, Alexa? I thought I entertained you. Did you do you know other Alexa owners that that happened to? I think it actually may have happened to Ryan, one of the other people in our group, where his started making weird sounds and stuff, and his kids thought it was great. So, so I have an Alexa that I received as a Christmas gift, and it's still in the box. It did not laugh from inside the box. That would have been really freaky. I'm going to go ahead and attribute this to ghosts. In the shell or on the half shell or like how? Well, you know, it's whatever your preference is. You know, this is, uh, this is the internet. We have, uh, we have freedom of choice here. <laughs> Do we have a ghost of the week or tool of the week? Yes. So we spent a lot of time this week talking about cloud-based things. And so there is a free security toolkit for Amazon S3 called S3TK. And so this is a utility that's been open source from Instacart, an e-commerce provider. And what this does is this basically gives you a much crisper view of what your S3 buckets are actually set up and doing. Um, we've seen so many breaches happen because, you know, we're talking Amazon has great infrastructure, the AWS services and tools are so great. And what happens is someone runs the whole business intelligence report and does all this stuff and finds out these really great findings. And then they accidentally dump the results of that into the same S3 bucket that's, you know, hosting their marketing website. And then it's open for the world to get to. So this tool runs through all your buckets, says what they're used for and what you need to do to fix them. So it's S3TK. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Matt Radelak, Killian Ingler, and all our listeners for joining us today. Let us know what you think about our podcast by going to iTunes to rate and review our show. Thanks, and we'll meet up again soon. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.